You're listening to the Ones Ready Podcast, a team of Air Force Special Operators forged in combat with over 70 years of combined operational experience, as well as a decade of selection instructor experience. If you're tired of settling and you want to do something you truly believe in, you're in the right place. Now here's your favorite CCT personality, JTAC extraordinaire, embracer of the ridiculous face, and like the shortest operator you'll ever meet, Peaches. Hey everybody, welcome back to the team room. You are here with Ones Ready, and we have a pretty awesome guest with us today. We have Colonel Allison Black of the 2-4 SAL. She is the Deputy Commander of the 2-4 SAL, or the 2-4 Special Operations Wing at Herbert Field. She is, uh, in fact, one of my commanders. <laughs> uh, I have many bosses, and <laughs> Colonel Black is one of them. So thank you for joining us, ma'am. Hey, thanks for having me. Honored to be inside the team room. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so um, as a little icebreaker, I mean, uh, a lot of, like I mentioned before, our demographic is about 15 to 35. So uh, a lot of them are, you know, new recruits, a lot of high schoolers, college students, and people that are spying Air Force Special Warfare folks. Um, and we do also have some active duty. So some of those People already know who you are, but um, I have heard that your nickname is the Angel of Death. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, I um, very interesting. It's funny, uh, you know, how that all came about. You know, I, I think a quick intro. It, it's it's uh, worthy to note that I spent six and a half years enlisted, and I you know came in out of high school was a SEER specialist, and that was foundational to who I am as a person as an airman, as an officer, as a wife, mom, all of that. Um, it, it showed me what right looked like from, from a very young age, you know, of a, a whopping 18 years old um, with no school, you know, enlisting in the, in the Air Force. You know, and as I, as I got my degree, ended up in AFSOC, um, I uh, was always seeking a niche mission, something where I felt like I could contribute. And I landed at the 16th Special Operations Squadron at Herbert Field, which is the AC-130H specter gunship at the time and for me as a navigator uh it was unique in that the nav sits on the flight deck on the h or did sit on the flight deck the h model made a big difference because there's windows up there everybody likes to take a little look outside even <laughs> even when it's dark um so uh you know you take uh you take if you think about training and you know, we say we say that we can teach monkeys to fly. You know, we can teach you how to control air. We can teach you how to put bombs on target for kids who have never done anything like that. That's absolutely true. You know, they took a New Yorker. I grew up on Long Island, New York, and they taught me how to teach others to survive, evade, resist, and escape. I knew nothing about it. Then they took this bug eater and they put me through aviation school and they taught me how to navigate and how to become part of, you know, a gunship crew uh, to rain hate on the battlefield. and. Uh, the experience and where we went with the angel, where the angel of death story came from was, you know, my first combat mission error uh, ever. So you go back to November of 2001 and we had just uh, brought three AC-130Hs from Herbert Field and we landed in Karshi, Kanabad, Uzbekistan. Uh, we land, we get shuffled off to some tents uh, trying to figure out, you know, you know where, to, where to throw our gear. Uh, 12, you know, air crew have to have 12 hours of crew rest before we can be asked to, to perform a mission. So after the 12 hours, we were brought back to the ops tent and, and briefed on the mission. And the mission was a call sign, a frequency, and a grid. And they handed it to me. So I had my green little notebook, wrote it down, 
And we, uh, we mission planned as best we could, hopped in the airplane and off we went, figuring out how we were going to get from Uzbekistan down to the border of Afghanistan, where we were going to tweak the guns. We show up overhead at the time. It was ODA 595 in uh, near Mazar Sharif, uh, near east of Mazar Sharif, actually, near Kanduz. And Bart Decker was our controller located with uh, General Dostum and the Northern Alliance. So again, this you know Lieutenant Black at the time, full on a full crew with Lieutenant Colonels, old crusty guys that had flown in Panama and, and other places. Uh, we you know do our job. We identify the friendlies and we're starting to look for the enemy. And as we uh, you know were searching for the enemy, uh, we came across one vehicle that was closing in on the friendly position. Not definitely not close. They were you know four or five miles away that we uh, put our eyes on and determined that, that they were enemy. And it was just as about we were uh, we were about to engage that one vehicle. It pulled into a compound, uh, multiple vehicles, multiple adult males, and I passed that to to Bart and the team. And they came back and said, you know, those are confirmed Taliban. You're cleared hot. So again, you you know, I looked at the fire control officer sitting next to me. And I looked at him. I'm like, game on. I just uh, you know, you train for this, but. Uh, the feeling of payback at the time of making sure this was never going to happen again was just a very present. Um, so we, we unloaded 400 rounds of 40 and a hundred rounds of 105 at night. My, my first combat missionary <laughs> ever. Jeez. Uh, so during that engagement, we were, we were running out of ammunition because there were so many targets and they, they were unpredictable. They would scatter, they would group up. They didn't know what was engaging them. So to preserve ammunition and make sure every round uh, counted, we were using our ISLID, right, which is our high-powered laser pointer. Really, we were using it internally to deconflict and uh, organize and sort and track the the enemy. So during that, uh, you know, during the exchange of communications with the ground team, and then the use of the ISLID, General Dostum, who's located with the ODA and BART. They hear me talking on the radio, right? Because as the nav, I have to get the plane from point A to point B, but I, I'm responsible for all the tactical communications. So uh, I, I'm, as I'm relaying what I'm seeing and getting approvals, General Dostum hears my voice and says, you know, is that, is that a woman? Um, and, and the guys are like, yeah, you know, yeah. As a matter of fact, it is. He's like, oh, America is so determined. They bring their women to kill Taliban? Like he couldn't believe it, they said. Said he was laughing, thought it was the funniest thing ever. So he gets on his walkie-talkie and calls the enemy that we're shooting. And we're just laying hate. And he says, you know, in so many words, hey, you're so pathetic. American women are killing you. Surrender now. And as this engagement was going on and he was back and forth with the folks we were shooting, uh, you could say that there was no secure communications because he would key the mic while I was talking so they could hear me. Um uh, they, uh, he, he saw the use of the islet, the laser. And he, again, he looks at the guys and he's like, Hey, is that, is that a death ray? Cause he thought the laser was blowing things up. He didn't relate it to the, to the rounds of 40 and 105. So, uh, they were like, Oh, as a matter of fact, it is, you know, he's like, I knew, I knew America had a death ray. So he gets back on his walkie talkie, uh, you know, General Dostum is saying, American, American women are killing you. The angel of death is here, raining death and destruction. Surrender now. So mind you that, you know, me and the airplane and the crew, we have no idea this is going on. We are just making sure we can 
uh, eliminate as many targets mm-hmm. as possible. Uh, and, you know, ca- recalculating fuel to squeeze out as much time on station as we can. And, uh, and we do, we complete the mission. We go back to K2 and, uh, and, you know, felt, felt great about what we were able to do that night. It wasn't until a couple of weeks later that the team came up to K2 with an AK-47 from General Dostum. Walks in the ops tent and they're like, here, and they hand this weapon to me. And they said, he just wanted to say thank you for what your crew had done that night. Because the next morning, hundreds of them did surrender to him. And uh, yeah, like pretty crazy, right? I'm just like a little LT wanting to rain some hate and, you know, do blow stuff up. Like, who doesn't? Um, <laughs> and and, and uh, it was pretty rewarding. That weapon is hung at the 16th Special Operations Squadron at Cannon Air Force Base now inside their uh, squadron. And uh, I'll tell you that pretty rewarding didn't talk much about it at the time because it was, I was called out for being different. And even though it, you know, it's a great story. I, I really shied away from it for many years because I was just part of an incredible crew. Um, there's a, there's a second little piece to the story that, that I have to share with you. Um, a few weeks after that incident or that uh, night on the battlefield, General Dostum went to a burqa unveiling ceremony with a bunch of Afghan women back in, you know, November, 2001 and said, Hey, you know, America allows their women to fly these war planes and, uh, you know, be in battle. And if you continue to fight one day, you all will have those freedoms. So he took this little story, this little piece of, of, you know, just getting the mission, protecting the Eagles, making sure the enemy doesn't get away. And he turned it for good. So it was a hindsight, pretty rewarding that we were able to make that kind of an impact. Yeah. And I feel like we can almost talk about like break apart this whole thing in this chain of events for like the rest of this hour. Like that is one of the coolest stories that I've heard from any of the pilots or anybody that's a flyer as far as their nickname. And then, you know, angel of death for the general to have given you that name, uh, you know, inadvertently he was trying to, you know, scare the enemy, which obviously it worked and everything, but this is also one of the coolest names just, you know, I couldn't imagine going from seer specialist and I'm sure you wanted to go over to the tactical side and actually get your hands more into the, uh, the thick of things whenever you tr- transition to the AC-130 is probably why you started it. But like for that amount of responsibility to kind of fall on the shoulders of a lieutenant, which I am currently a lieutenant, I was pre- prior enlisted and now I'm a lieutenant, um, you know, it takes – it takes a lot, especially being the only female, the, only, the newest person, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then to be pointed out like that is a super awesome story. But I do want to talk just a little bit um, because we have a lot of people in the seer side of things and they're looking to come in and do that same job as well. Um, was there any specific um, lessons learned or things that you loved about seer? Because you mentioned that it kind of made you the person that you were or you are now and really molded you into the person Um can you mention any specific things about that career field that really um, have stuck with you or, you know, things that you still do today or you think about as you're talking to people? Because I can tell, you know, you've hung around with a lot of seer people and people that are more tactical with the way you speak and the way you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that whole raining hate thing. Yeah, like, the oh, raining hate. That. <laughs> that terminology doesn't like just float around. So, uh, yeah, uh, anything, uh, I have, as far two, as I have two teenage boys, so I, I kind of try to <laughs> throw rain some hate on them sometimes. Um, I will, yeah. Um, at the time when I first came in the Air Force, I think I was, I was really just looking for a challenge. 
And, uh, you know, it was you know day six or day seven of basic training and, and the specialty job. So much different than it is today, but it was a pararescueman, a combat controller, and a seer specialist came in. It's like three guys walking into a bar. You know, they came in and talked to all the kids that were mm-hmm. right into basic training. And, and at the time, you know, this is 92, uh, women couldn't be combat controllers. You couldn't be pararescue, but you could do seer. And I was like, oh, oh let me go. I'm going to go check that out. Let me see what that's like. Because you... You didn't come in guarantee those jobs during that time, much different than it is today. So uh, it was the challenge. And again, I knew nothing about it, but but knew I was going to be part of, I was going to challenge myself and uh, be part of something bigger. And it was, uh, I, they, they train you to teach. They train you this, they give you the skills to be really good at what you do if you're motivated to do it, right? Um what was foundational to me was the, the empowerment. They essentially, they give you the rope to hang yourself with, right? They, they give you the platform to teach and train and the respect, and they trust that you're going to go do your job. Um, that for me has been foundational and that I have to trust people to do their job. I have to trust that everybody uh, wants to be, you know, on the team wants to be as good as they can be. That's what I've seen. I think uh, the the professionalism in which small career fields like SEER, like pararescue, like combat control, uh, the there's an intimacy and there's a level of respect and responsibility that not other career fields get from their bosses, um, and that they demand because they. I think you walk into a room and you you carry yourself just a little bit different based on the level of responsibility that you're giving these 18, 19 year olds that rise to the occasion. And those that don't, they usually find another path. Um, They don't uh, tend to stick around. And that was foundational for me to crossing over uh, to the dark side to become an officer. I, uh, I understood the air force at that point. Um, And then it was for me specifically, I understood what the battlefield looked like from the ground. So SEER gave me that. And I, when I went to the air, even though I was looking through a soda straw, looking through a sensor down at the battlefield, I knew I was more familiar with the words that I needed to pass to the guys on the ground to mm-hmm. paint a clear picture. It was easy for me to make that tran- that transition or that translation, I guess. Uh, maybe, uh, and maybe that's, that comes a little bit harder for folks that hadn't, uh, hadn't had that experience. Yeah. And that's super important that, uh, you know, not all of people get that double-sided and like, okay, this is what they're probably thinking. Cause they're on the ground. They're in this group. And I know these guys, or maybe even knew a couple of them. Sometimes when you hear a call signs come across and you're like, Oh, I know these people are deployed yeah. in this place. And you're like, Oh my gosh. All right. This is what you got to do. And then you kind of give them that, uh, talk on and tell them what's going on and tell them about all that stuff. So that is super important to have as far as, um, you know, that eye in the sky and helping out your guys. Um, and then as far as, uh, you know, being seer, that is a super, a really important thing that you pointed out about, you know, you're a senior airman teaching all these people and it really is you having to take ownership of everything that you're doing and, you know, know that it's going to reflect upon, you know, the squadron, of course, but mostly you, because you're the only person out there, then you're their lifeline when you're the seer people and they're all scared and they haven't been out in the woods before or whatever. You're the person that's kind of showing them, you know, it's okay. This is what you're going to do. Think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit ironic. You, you're teaching them and giving them skills that you hope they never have to use. Yeah. You hope they're never in a situation where they have to uh, revert back to their circle or, you know, give a detention statement or evade mm-hmm. um, or, or try to survive. 
Um, but it's the confidence and it's the confidence to conquer fear of the unknown. And everybody will, you know, if they're, when they're pressing, regardless of the situation, when it's a high stress situation, they revert back to their training and you, you hope that what you pass to them, um, they'll, they'll remember and be able to, you know, the carry their, their head high in return. So super rewarding. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, uh, you know, like we were talking about the transition from SEER specialist over into the AC-130, I just wanted to know, because obviously I've never been through flight school and something like that, um, you were able to choose the AC-130 and why specifically did you choose that, um, you know, come from SEER career field, which is awesome anyway by itself, going into AC-130? Sure. So uh, I spent, you know, the first four years of uh, my SEER career, I was at Fairchild Air Force Base teaching at the schoolhouse there. And then I PCS uh, up to Alaska and taught the Arctic Survival School up at Ielsen. So I was there, I was going to school at night and finished my degree. And when I applied uh, for officer training, I, I, you know, I tell you, I wasn't really bent on just being an officer. I wanted to, again, be a part of something unique, different, challenge myself, um, and I, I applied and, and got picked up for navigator training. I, I knew I wanted to get to AFSOC. So at the time, you know, you when you go through pilot training or navigator aviation training, they they do what's called a drop, right? So at a certain point in your training, they're going to rank your class. It changes over time, but at this for me, it was you know one to one to thirty or however many folks are in your class, and then number one got their pick of platforms. Number two got their pick, depending on some of some of it. Sorry, some of it uh, depended on the needs of the Air Force. So I knew I wanted to get to AFSOC. And depending on where I fell in my class, how well I did, and what was available, I would have taken anything, but I really wanted gunships. Because of my prior service, I was familiar with the mission sets. And I knew um, that if I was to create enough propaganda at my with all the other students in my class, if they didn't make them not want to go to gunship, <laughs> that it would be left for me. <laughs> there might be a little truth to that. I might've said that AFSOC's deployed 450 days a year and they're in terrible locations. <laughs> and, um, no, I, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to, to score high enough in my class to choose the platform, the AC-130 and choose the model because we had the H model and the U model. I preferred the older, uh, H model. I, like I mentioned earlier, because it was up on the flight deck. And I wanted to be a part of what was going on uh, with the pilots and the engineer and the fire control officer. That was that was just my choice at the time. Um, yeah, and I got lucky enough to get it, and then come back to come to Herbert Field as the assignment. Well, and thank goodness you did, you know, because you're out there huh. doing the good work, laying down the hate, and <laughs> and um, as a as a, a ground pounder that's been on the ground while these things are happening, I can tell you, besides the A10s and the uh, Helos. Man, there's a special place in our hearts for the for the AC-130 gunships. You know, like there's this camaraderie, and we we kind of it's not that we consider y'all ground pounders, but there seems to be a, a much higher level of connection uh, between yeah. uh, y'all and us. And I'm, I'm just wondering, have you ever been to a place where uh, a ground pounder hasn't come up to you and tried to buy you a drink or or tell you about how amazing you are and how you saved their lives one time? Because there's that connection is real. Just that yeah. that feeling when you guys check on and then the chatter stops and the bad guys are scared and you know it. It's amazing. It's um, that was something that I didn't know existed until 2002, 2003. So, you know, after 9-11, you just go to war and you you go get after it. Now, there were times, you know, in the early, late 2001, you know, early 2002, that when I was checking in, it would, 
I knew the guys on the ground. They're like, right. is this, you know, is this Lieutenant Black? I'm like, affirmative, just trying to be super yeah. professional. <laughs> They're like, oh, we were in Puerto Rico together. We were on this exercise. You know, this is, I'm like, ah, oh, everybody's listening to me right now. I need to be super <laughs> professional on the radio. <laughs> um, but it was, it was an instant personal connection because it was, a, it wasn't just a call sign to me. I wasn't expecting that. I guess, um, because there was a face, there was a relationship, uh, a training relationship that had been built in that year and a half prior to 9-11 happening that I was at Holbrook Field and part of AFSOC at different exercises, you know, JRXs, multi-lats, even just home station training. So I say, you know, where I, yeah, I had three rule, three primary rules, right? Um, protect the eagles, kill the right guy, and don't suck. I think that kind of sums up, uh, you can, everything that we do can fall into one of those bins. And if you're going to suck, you know, suck less tomorrow. So, or don't suck as much (laughs) as the other guy. Um, So it was crossing the pond. So it was when we were bringing planes back and forth, you know, 2002, 2003 for maintenance or whatnot, we would stop midway, have our, you know, uniforms and our patches on, and we would be approached in at pick a place you know, in the world, one of the transitory places, and they would come up and we would talk about dates and times and places and call signs. I was pretty easy to hunt down. Um, And (laughs) then we would realize that we were on the battlefield together. I have my green notebook of call signs, dates, locations, and uh, still it's tucked away with some of my original charts from, you know, uh, early Afghanistan that I'm able to, we can connect the dots. I didn't realize the impact we had on the personal side until we met face to face. And then it sunk in. And when I started to have those experiences or we'd have like a troops in contact situation, you could hear it in your guys's voices, frankly, the, the dire need, you know, we feel very much protected or I always felt very much protected in the tin can 10,000 feet above you. Um, I, I could not imagine what was, I mean, I could through the black screen or the white screen and the sensors, but I wasn't living what you were. So that's a burden that we carried. And, and it's a very intimate burden for us. And to know that we're able to, you know, allow you all to get back to your family, to get back to your team, to get back to your family, to do the mission, um, really rewarding. Um, and, and when we would, when I would hear it on the radio during the mission, or if it was at the end of the mission, Hey guy, you know, you, it was the thank you, like you saved you saved our ass tonight. Um, I would make sure the entire crew was listening to that, um, so they could hear um, the just the respect and the appreciation for what we had done. Because it sometimes gets lost, so we're hacking the mission, um, and it, it's it's definitely that personal touch. And I think that's absolutely why a lot of us continue to to stay in and ride it out, even when you know there's a lot of sucky times mixed in there. No, I mean, it's, it's incredible. And it, it's, it's hard to overstate what that's like, you know, that, that, that connection. We, uh, I've never gotten the feeling that the, the gunship folks would not do anything for us on the ground. And it's, it's hard to get past that. But I want to talk about that mentality in your air crew uh, coming from Sierra and being a ground pounder yourself. Were you able to impart some of those mannerisms to everybody uh, so that they also understood kind of what it was like from the ground perspective uh, and making your team as effective as possible? I think, um, you know, as I, as I grew in my own skin and my own capability and, and you know, uh, became an instructor, I was able to share that, you know, in the tactical training piece. I would uh, say, though, that 
just the dirty old gunship crew has that mentality anyway. Uh, they uh, historically don't go to fancy exercises or stay in fancy hotels. They're linked with the army. They're living in tents. That mentality, and you sprinkle some gunners in there. Like it's not, it's not a clean, it's not a clean sweep. Everybody is gritty. It's everything they can do. Um, it's you know the gunship, the newer gunships smell much better and they're much cleaner than they were. Uh, I might eat my sandwich off the floor of a gunship today. Back then, <laughs> there was no two second rule. Uh, it did not apply to those those old old birds. But I think the mentality of the crews were like that. That made it a natural fit for me from Sear landing in the gunship community because that's just who they are. So it was nothing that I brought. I just I fit right in with them. <laughs> I. So th this kind of whole conversation um, kind of brings back like perspective for me. So, so one thing that I, I didn't have beforehand, you know, I, I was deploying the same time you were back in those early days. And then going through my career ended up being a, a, a patch and all that kind of stuff. And I, in 2015 to 2016, I did a, a deployment where I was the wing weapons officer in Bagram. And so I was working with the F-16s. And, you know, when, you, when you're on the ground and you can get frustrated with crews, you know, because you're, you know, you're in a fight and things aren't happening the way you, you, right. you need them to be. And that is, that is my fault. That is the crew's fault. Like, it, there's just so much going on. And everybody's trying to do their best, but they can't do it. So one of the perspectives that I had being a Wiggins weapons officer was that, so I'm, I'm working intimately with the, with the F, uh, F-16 pilots, and they would come back from a troops in contact, and, and we would debrief it. And I, I remember one of these troops in contacts is they were doing their absolute best to, to help the JTAC out and the team out on the ground. But no matter what they did, just because of the, the tactical situation, the environment, the terrain, where the, the friendlies and the enemy were positioned, it's difficult, especially in a Viper heading that fast. It's, it's tough, right? And I could see the, the visible just um, emotions and pain yeah. in them and the frustration because they wanted to do more. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, almost to the fact where they were like, you know, I'll just lawn dart this thing in if, if it meant that I could help these guys out. And, and I had never, I had never seen that before that aspect of it. So I, I think that's important for the, the TACP, the controller, the JTAC community to understand. But um, like, I'm, I imagine you had to have had situations like that where no matter what you do, you are trying your best to help these guys out, but you just can't. So how do you, how do you manage that in a healthy mental manner? Well, that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, I think uh, if you, if you just look at technology too, the fidelity in which we see the battlefield has changed so much, you know, in, uh, in 20 years, in 2001, it was, you were either a white hot or a black hot. And you were kind of a blob. You know, there was some movement to the blob, but there was uh, the fidelity which we see from our all of our the pods on the fighter aircraft, right? Our sensors on our other aircraft. You know, I'm, I know if you've got 
you know, what color are your shirts that you're wearing? You know, what shorts, what are your shoes? You know, you have laces, do you not? Um, so to watch that, those firefights or those troops in contact where, where, um, you know, frankly, we're, we have American loss of life or coalition loss of life, um, where our folks in, you know, whether it's a fast mover or, you know, an RPA uh, or any aircraft, they, they fire a weapon and it, it frags somebody they shouldn't, um, you know, with CivCAS would be a good example of that. Um, so there's a lot of situations where things don't go perfect. And how do you process that? I wish it was as easy as, hey, take a Motrin. You're going to feel better tomorrow. Um, you know, come see me then. Uh, because the way you process it, the way I process it, you know, maybe for me, it's two days from the event. Maybe for you, it's two years. Um, when when will it come up? I think our community, uh, Air Force, but AFSOC, you know, uh, has really put their money where their mouth is in the resources to help us navigate um, what we've seen and been a part of. Um, the hell, right? The spiritual pillar, the physical pillar, um, and that's if you're having problems, right? If you're if you have some issues, right? Your the baggage you're carrying inside, and it manifests itself in many ways. We provide the help for that. But coming up on the net and saying, "Hey, I need some help," is no longer taboo. We were very much afraid might be a strong word, but we we very much avoided telling the docs, our bosses, anybody that anything was wrong with us, because then we wouldn't be able to go on the mission. And that is no longer the case. You know, and as we uh, assess and select and recruit the next generation, they're seeing those resources and giving these tips and techniques from, from the professionals that know how to do it on how to navigate that throughout their career instead of trying to fix broken kids like us after that. <laughs> Um, I think I'm impressed as uh, some, you know, some folks might say, you know, I think when we first started to come on board, they're like, Oh, come on. We don't need this POTIF. We don't need a site <laughs> doc. There was the naysayers. I think we were all very skeptical. Um, but I, I feel like we're believers there. We're always going to have some skeptics, but the majority of the force, those that have gone through it and walked through the other side and are back out on mission, live and prove, um, that it, that does, it's not going to take it away from you. We're here to help you. We we invest in you, so we want to keep you as long as long as yeah. we can. Um, if you're broken physically, we want to fix you <laughs> to keep you as long as we can. Um, so I, I feel like uh, I can I feel like I didn't really answer the question specifically because there's no one answer. But I I, I would love to tell the audience that the res we care. The resources are there. If you're having challenges working through a situation that you found yourself in personally or professionally, we're there to help and everybody's bought in. I don't know if you, how you think about that, what you think about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've we've brought up POTA for, for, for everybody that doesn't know what POTIF is. Oh, yeah. um, it's preservation of the force and the family. Um, I, I, you know, Special Tactics or Air Force Special Warfare, ASOC, and SOCOM in general um, are, are very focused on this. This is, is a, you know... I would, I wouldn't say it's at the the number one priority, but it's it's real close because I mean the mission and the people are always number one priority. And guess what, POTIF helps all of that, so it's right. it is kind of right in there. And um, you know, we just 
we were having a conversation with the um, SOCOM's POTIF director. In fact, uh, you were on their, their podcast, uh, the SOCOM Softcast, uh, a couple yes. months ago. But, um, you know, and they've, what people don't understand is that SOCOM has to go to Congress every year and ask for this money. So it's not a guarantee, but the, the benefits that the commands have been seeing and, and the way we've been able to help people out is enormous. And, um, and I think it's very important. And I think we've got to continue to chase after this money. And now they're going after a, a kind of a cognitive aspect of it too. So not only, you know, strength, nutrition, spiritual, um, and I'm probably mi- missing one on there, but, um, you know, they're going after the brain health side of it. So I, I think that's important. And I think that, you know, when you talk about kind of us, us old folks that have, you know, already already have the trauma, I think that that's still, that's going to be able to help us in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I know, I know I'll keep banging on about POTIF, but, but I mean, I use the hell out of them um, all the time. I, I, am, I am not one to shy away from, from utilizing POTUS. Or POTUS. I think, it's, I think POTUS. It's, the, uh, it's the type A's, it's the influencers within the organization giving those resources the credibility for others to go, right? Because we all, we, all, we all look up to somebody inside our formation. And if those people are using those resources and talking about it, um, we're more likely to go. So it's, it's, it's important. It's not yeah. just leadership down and in it's up in it. It's, you know, it's internal, it's left and right. It's, uh, you know, it takes everybody. Yeah. And it takes definitely a lot of maturity to find yourself in that position and realize it and then actually admit it and go get help. And, uh, that uh, definitely wasn't the traditional, like you were talking about, uh, way that we explained everything and how you're supposed to grow up. You're supposed to, you know, like shrug off everything and you're invincible. That's and right. that's kind of how we used to be uh, trained, but there are times for that. And there are times when you need to fix yourself because <laughs> nobody's invincible. <laughs> so, um, you know, talking about some of the stuff in your career, um, you know, whether or not, I'm sure you probably won't admit it, but you've had a pretty awesome and prestigious career, you know, going from the stuff that you were talking about before uh, to going to the element command at uh, SOCOM headquarters, and then also now the deputy commander of the 24 Special Operations Wing, which is a pretty big deal for those people listening. I know for the, most of the civilians, it's just numbers and stuff with some acronyms, but it's a pretty big deal, especially within the special tactics community, because you are in charge of a lot of special tactics, special operations, airmen. Um, so, you know, kind of along that vein, do you think, um, what has it been like, you know, working so closely with those airmen and the things and the missions that they're doing and, you know, kind of being on the leadership side, not so much in the seat, watching the action happen as much. Um, how's that experience been for you? It's been terrible. Cause I want to be in the seat going. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you long for those days. Um, uh, I, uh, I have, I have, you know, I would say that I've stumbled and bumbled my way from good deal to good deal, <laughs> uh, incredible teammates, even job, you know, jobs that I, that I would end up working. I didn't know anything about it. didn't sound very good. And uh, somebody was, you know, kicking me from behind through the door to, to take it. Um, it's been the insight and the access, right? Hacking the mission and being tactically proficient is, uh, really rewarding. And that's why we come in. 
and and you you care about your team, you care about the mission, you don't really understand the importance maybe of career or or maybe understand but you just don't really care because you're very mission focused. I think I, I absolutely went through that that phase. Quite, it was a, quite a long phase where that's all I cared about. Um, and then you get put into leadership positions where it's not just about the risk uh, that you're taking. It's you're carrying the burden uh, for the risk of others. And it's, I think uh, there was a defining moment for me where I was, you know, always fine with taking, you know, leading from, you know, from the front and being a team player, never asking folks to do something I wouldn't do myself. Uh, and it's acceptable risk because that's what we all sign up to do. It was when I would look at the families and as a young spouse, young child, baby, uh, and then we would pick up and go overseas to, for our deployment. That first, the first time I was in a you know senior leadership position and I was taking crews to combat where it was on my shoulders, like I would be the one that would have to have the conversation if it didn't go well. That was uh, a defining moment for me. And I didn't think all of that through until you put names to faces and you see uh, the stressors that are on young families, you know, going to war. Um, I, uh, I thrive in, in the people area. I in, enjoy seeing others succeed. So, you know, as I had to step away from it being the, the go-to guy in the platform and they clipped my wings, I wasn't flying anymore <laughs> to see others succeed personally, like in their lives, but professionally, in and out of the office, like it was, it's rewarding. Um, and that is, that's frankly why I stick around. If I can impact one person who will then impact another, then, uh, you know, we just, we keep, we continue to create a winning team. I, uh, success is great. You know, winning doesn't suck, <laughs> um, <laughs> but failure uh, you know, it might have been, it might not be a significant failure, but failure, you learn more from that than success any day of the week. Un- unfortunately, right? Eating humble pie is never going to taste good. But if you can take those lessons uh, of what you stumbled over and how you failed and how you would do it differently, and we share it and you're confident enough to go, hey, guess what, guys? I screwed this up. Don't do it. Don't do it this way. Or I recommend this. Or here's what I learned from it. I didn't see this coming. So many, so many stories of, uh, well, there I was. Um, if you can share those, and then th- those folks learn from it, that I feel is is pretty darn successful. Um, I, I and then as I've had in higher jobs, right? I was fortunate enough to work for the AFSOC commander on his CAG. It was General Wooster at the time years ago as a young major. And then most recently before coming to the 2-4 Sal, I was the uh, CAG being Commander's Action Group. I was working on the Commander's Action Group for the SOCOM Commander. I spent a year with General Thomas and a year with General Clark in command. And the insight and the access and understanding what problems keep them up at night, how they navigate those, how the component commanders navigate the issues within, within each of the, their respective uh, lanes and how we all come together to feed the big SOCOM machine. Very helpful um, and insightful uh, to, uh, to, to being a, a more informed leader. We, we get policy changes, we get guidance, we get 
uh, all of these things handed down to us. Uh, and we grumble about it sometimes because we don't quite understand it. So being, being at that level and seeing it written, seeing the discussions, and then being able to explain it to the layman like me uh, down and into the other organizations, that's where I found value or I, I could provide value to the others. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, it's, uh, it was super rewarding. Not a job that I, would, I ever sought to have. I would just kind of get thrown in there. Um, and, and they were, I was, uh, lucky enough that they didn't think I was going to screw it up. So they, so they gave me the opportunity. Yeah. And I also just wanted to point out, um, one other thing about your career as, as far as the position that you're holding right now. Um, I think you're one of the first non ST commanders that have come around in charge of the special operations wing. And like we've said, it's, uh, you know, the position that you have is nothing. It's well-earned. And, um, I think, you know, for those people out there listening, I just wanted to point that out because, you know, your personality obviously lends really well to the community and you speak the same language, you have all the same type of stories and everything like that. And, you know, it's well respected. Um, how did you feel whenever you first got into that role? Where you're like, Ooh, I fit in perfectly. Or is it like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be in this command position because I didn't do these <laughs> specific things. But how did you sure. feel about that? Sure. Uh, that being here in the two fort, that's not the first time that's happened to me. Uh, you know, I left gunships, went off to school, came back and I landed in, in the U 28 as a, as the DO and then the commander, I knew nothing about that little airplane. Um, so I was tactically inproficient. Right? I, I was just, uh, I, I carried the burden of not being the expert in the weapon system. So I land here in the two, four Sal, I am not the expert in the weapon system. And over time, it's, it's probably a combination of life experience, maturity, confidence in who I am um, and what I can bring to the fight that I am able to not be so concerned about not being the best combat controller or pararescue man or right, so I, I am not that. That's not why I was brought here. Um, I, uh, I was brought here for perspective, for leadership, to you know, provide guidance, to get the units, what they need to go get after the mission. But, but uh, you always feel a sense of, of inadequacy when you land in, a, in a, uh, a job that you're not the expert in. I think that's pretty human to be like, oh, man, like, mm -hmm. I'm not there. And, and I'll tell you that it was, you know, my husband is a retired, retired SEER specialist. And, and I'm going to give him props to this because he said it best when I when I was like, man, am I, am I equipped for this? And I've said it many times throughout my career, but uh, specifically the two force out, like, am I like, I don't have any expertise in any of their um, specialties. You know, I understand it. I've worked with them side by side, but man, I don't know. And uh, my husband said it best. He said, if you were to go into a, back to a flying unit, you would spend a bunch of time trying to get really good at what you do to be tactically proficient. He's like, you're not, at the two force out to go call casts, right? You're not, you're not there to kick in the door and shoot the enemy between the eyes. You're there to just be you. And it, I didn't want to tell him he's right. Cause I'm never, you're never supposed to tell your spouse that, right? <laughs> no, no. Um, but I thought about that and it, it really resonated. He's like, I'm like, wow, that's, it's almost like the pressure's off. Like I, 
get to go understand and be with the units to see what the challenges are to help them navigate it or help them work through a process, right? The organized training and equip piece to make it easier and more effective and efficient. But I don't have to spend the time trying to prove to them that I'm one of them because I'm not. That's not what I'm brought here for. Um, I just need to really work at where I can make a difference. So the burden was off. And I think, uh, you know, to the, the earlier point, if I had landed in aviation unit, I probably would have been drawn right back into, oh, I got to get back in the aircraft. I've got to be really good at what I do. In this position, I was I was able to separate myself. I don't know that I would have been able to do that, you know, 10 years ago. I, I think I still would have been caught up in the tactical piece and, and maybe carried a burden that I, I probably didn't need to be carrying. Now I'm like, I'm just too old. I know I'm not, not going to be good at it. And if, plus it's fun. You know, I, I'll go to a unit. They'll give me a handler to keep me out of trouble. They'll show me what's going on and uh, we can have a good day. Uh, I, I think everybody's felt that the, the having to let go of that tactical role and move up is uh, it's challenging. Um, but one of, one of the other yeah. roles that you, uh, you, you're in charge of or uh, things that you're working on is it, as a the sow, you guys are just not just worried about the here and the now. Y'all are, are leaning forward. And so uh, when we get someone like you with a strategic level job on, of course, we're going to ask, how's the 2030 vision? Where are we going? Do you have any updates for us? You know, not loaded question at all. No, not loaded at all. Uh, and I, we're going to, we are going to answer it today. No, not <laughs> right now. Here it is. Breaking news. Um it, that is a challenging, it's a challenging question. We all, we all see the writing on the wall. Like there's lots of pivots going on. AFSOC is pivoting. SOCOM is pivoting. The Air Force is pivoting. Um, we have been charged with maintaining the CVEO fight. That is something that, you know, SOCOM commander will, they'll, will, will accept no risk and will continue to do that. So that spear has to stay sharp. Uh, we know what that looks like. Um, and now we're uh, and we're trying to train uh, to what we think it might evolve to, right? For for twenty years we have been really successful, and we have evolved. If we look at special warfare, special tactics specifically, we have evolved by contact. So we w- we went to the fight. The enemy would change a TTP, then we would jump ahead, and they would change again, and they'd pop up somewhere else with a new T, and we would change again. And we were chasing technology, as were they, and uh, and we were really effective, right? And now we're asking folks to change, and we're asking ST specifically to, hey, continue to mow the grass in the VEO fight, but now I want you to pivot to, you know, this preparation of the environment, you know, this uh, anti-China, you know, Russia focus, um, and it's gray. Uh, it, I call it squishy because there are some specific tasks. There are some specific problem sets that we're, that we're staring at and we're trying to solve, but there's a lot of unknowns. And to, uh, to most of us, we want to be told what to do. Hey, what do you need us to do? Don't tell me how to do it. Just tell me what you need to have done and I'll get it done for you. Um, and, and we can't do that right now. We're starting to reorganize ourselves uh, internally and we're starting to figure out what training, maybe what new technology, are there additional skill sets we need to have inside our own formation for our uh, within our own pipeline 
but are there different skill sets we want to acquire to add on to our special tactics teams? Are they, are they other people or is it something that we want to take on? Um, so if you look at the, you know, how the, if we do talk about our special tactics and our, our 720 special tactics group, and they're starting to orient um, to the different problems, we're moving in the right direction because that's where AFSOC is going. AFSOC is looking at how do we continue to counter the VEO fight and how do we ensure that we are, our technology isn't behind, our people and our skill sets aren't behind for a potential future fight or to pre- prevent a future fight. Um, this, it's, it's, uh, I, I've said this before. This question is hard because I can't give a black and white answer. And I think we all like to be somebody to shoot us straight. Um, so the shooting straight, there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, we're going to have to experiment. We're going to have to start to figure out uh, what technology might look like. And if it isn't right, be prepared to divest of that and pivot again. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um but I am certain that special tactics, special warfare will be a part of that fight. Um, they are the most credible force uh, inside our Air Force. They, uh, we, right, our community um, walks in a room and it's obvious that you've got somebody who's going to get the job done. We create problem solvers, Right. So if we continue to invest in our people and we allow them to identify what we think the problem might be, we're going to have to face, or where is the niche mission for special tactics airmen in this future fight? Um, We give them the platform, we organize, we train, we equip, we give them the priority to to train to those capabilities. We're going to learn a lot from it. And and some, frankly, I think some things aren't going to work out and we're going to have to be prepared to pivot away from those. And then those that, those things that work, we need to be able to uh, prioritize and continue to, to pursue uh, and, and invest in. No, but I think you nailed it with the, 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 the community that we're in with the, the special tactics folks. And, and it's a moving target that we're getting after as far as I can tell. And I think one of the things that we are really good at is empowering uh, some pretty low ranking people to go out there and we give them the tools and be like, hey, go figure this out in you know, the worst environment imaginable. And I think if you look at the history, time after time, uh, our people come through uh, way more often than not. And, and they, they, they solve those problems and they get it done. Uh, and that just goes to the, um, to me, to, to how the community operates all the way up through the South. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, uh, to I me, do. It, yeah. I think our people are probably frustrated. I think they're frustrated because there's a sense of, you know, Am I valued? Am I going to be valuable? Where do you need me? And oh, by the way, give me something to do because I got to do something right now. Um, <laughs> and we're, we see the decrease of uh, required missions for the VEO fight, right? We're deploying less. Uh, so we're going to see a pivot back to high, I think, high-end training and high-end exercises. And I think all of our components, our, our joint partners are going to be doing the same. Um but I absolutely sense the frustration as to, well, what is the next? I'm so used to knowing what the next is. Uh, and that is what brought me, what, that, maybe that's why guys came in. Hey, I want to be a part of this fight. And now this fight isn't happening. Whoa, what, what am I going to be asked to do? Well, there will be the next. 
where there'll be a next, you know, problem that will come up much like, you know, after 9-11, post 9-11 and the war on terror. The folks that I flew with that first night in 2001 never saw that coming. Um, and that's all we know. Um, right. We've been running hard for the last 20 years. The, the next problem we will all be, we'll be sitting in our rocking chairs. Be, being, <laughs> I will be hopefully uh, being envious and then saying, boy, well, there I was. Don't forget. Don't forget about me. Um, my fight was better than your fight. No, uh, <laughs> but I, I, uh, I, I just know wholeheartedly, you know, as you look at the talent, I look, you know, just talking to you guys today and I across the formation, like it's, I'm pretty confident whatever comes, we're going to crush it. Yeah. And I think everyone that is in this community is looking for a purpose that aligns with our values. And like you said, we're looking to get the job done no matter what, like, where's this next thing that I need to do? Where's the next, where's the next? And how much more can I take on? Because we all know based on being around other people, and unfortunately we've lost other people that we only have a little bit of time here and we want to get as much done as we can and, you know, try and help as many people along the way as we possibly can. Well, we're still able to, you know, maybe there'll be a one a day where we're not able to, but, uh, hopefully it's not anytime soon. Um, so, you know, kind of along the mindset of that, um, talking about some of the other airmen that are watching this. Cause like, you know, we have a kind of a, a wider audience. Most of the people are interested in ST and then, you know, everyone else that's just looking for awesome guests and some of the things they have to say, uh, for the people that are in right now and their younger airmen, listening to the podcast, would you have any advice uh, based off of your career and how you've kind of taken advantage of each of the opportunities that have been given to you um, that you would tell some of those Mm. airmen right now that are going in and what they can do to kind of uh, put themselves out there a little bit more and make sure they get the full experience of the Air Force and get every drop out of it they can? Yeah. Wow. Um, I think – I think it's uh, just a, I have, I fear regret, right? So I, I'm, uh, I am somebody who will try something and if it doesn't work out well, I'll be like, well, I mean, I'm never going to try that one again, but uh, <laughs> I will at least try. Um, I think that if, uh, if what we're talking about today, if the, the missions are appealing to the folks that are thinking about coming in and take the leap, I never thought uh, when I enlisted in the Air Force that I would be in today. I just hit 29 years this past month of total service. At three years, I'm like, I'm getting out. There's no way I'm staying in. You know, six years, said the same thing again. Uh, And, you know, God's got a plan for all of us. And I firmly believe that. And I think you need to trust yourself. But if you don't trust yourself completely because you feel like you might not be good enough, know that we train our job is to train folks to be more than good enough we will get you there you just got to have the mind over matter the heart the drive if you're you know if you're a quitter we don't want you mm-hmm. um, we want you to, we want to stick through it but some folks may feel like they could uh you know want want to be a part of it and they join and they realize it's not quite for them i, I have that respect for those folks uh they you know they have stepped into a realm that you know, most folks never w- would never have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I appreciate folks that even try. I'm not trying to to bag on them because what we ask of our 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 uh, people is is pretty darn difficult. Um, I would say that 
you'd be surprised at how fast a career can go and how time will fly. And, and frankly, the service gives folks in a time of uncertainty in our, in our uh, country, in our world, some stability. Um, it gives you some predictability. It gives you something on your resume and it will teach you more about yourself than you ever thought uh, and, and instill confidence um, for whatever it is, if you come in for four years, six years, or you spend a career, the time in, in the service, specifically in our communities, will be defining. And you just won't realize it when you're 18, 19, or 20. You're going to realize it a few years later when you're, mm-hmm. when you're talking and reflecting back on your life and career, how defining it was. Because I, 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 yeah, I think I just figured it out yesterday. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's almost uh, like we've brought up, you know, regret is a bad thing or maybe regret is hell. I don't know. Trent probably has something to say about regret, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> right behind me. I don't know what to say about it. <laughs> words we live by. So awesome, man. Well, um, final round of question. I know we kind of gave you a, a, a nice icebreaker to the angel of death call sign, but you know, the three of us were kind of wondering, what does it feel like when a 105 cracks off uh, on the back of your plane? Ah, it's, you know, so as a, as a nav, you sit sideways to the, that you feel it. You absolutely feel it. Um, you know, I have, uh, there's a couple of 105 shells, you know, Alan Yoshida has one of his 105 shells from 2001. Um, that was a, uh, it was, it's incredible um, for us, again, we talked about the relationship, um, that to be able to close the loop on that kind of a mission. But I, I tell you the big gun is, uh, I know you guys love her. We love her. Um, <laughs> it, it, until she can be replaced with a no kidding death ray. I think she, uh, she, she'll be wanted on the battlefield. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I have a couple 105s from from things that that I did uh, here. Decided to give them to my kids, so they don't know, they don't understand. They're kind of like, yeah, okay, cool. Like, what what am I supposed to do with this thing? But I think later on they'll appreciate Late, it. Yeah, later they will. I tell <laughs> you that um, you, you talk about 105 brass. There were uh, that first push in in 2001. I was able to bring some brass back to some fire stations in New York City, uh, and oh. let. Yeah, I went. I came back home to bring an airplane home. It was February of '02, and my dogs. We had two yellow labs that were up at my uh, brother's house. So I went to uh, go see my family just while I was home for a month, and um, uh, brought brass to those fire stations. You know, just we just drove. You know, drove down to New York City, and uh, I just wanted them to know that we were making them pay. Um, and it was, uh, had a picture of the crew slapped on there, kind of told, probably on the bottom, it's got the, maybe a date on it and, and our call sign. And they, uh, they were so grateful. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, I probably just didn't think through how they were going to react. I just wanted them to know, Hey, like we're out there and we're getting after it. And we're not going to let your brothers, you know, die without a little payback. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty rewarding to be able to do that. Oh, that's awesome. And I, th- I think that's really cool of you uh, to do that. So, um, ma'am, we really appreciate you coming on. I think anybody that's listening to this or watching this on, on YouTube, Spotify, 
Um, I think you've got a fantastic story to tell. You know, 29-year career starting off as a SEER specialist, transitioning to AC-130, and then the beginning stages of the war. And, and I mean, now 29 years later, you're you're out leading men and women in the 2-4 Special Operations Wing. So I think it's it's pretty awesome. And we, we sincerely appreciate you joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Always humble. It's always humbling for me uh, to hang out with you guys So and, and, and get me to talk about days past. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll have to do it again. I got a feeling that uh, just based off of other episodes that you may be a, a request to come back just to tell for story time because we have some people that have some incredible stories and, and as long as you're able to articulate it well like people want to hear it alright awesome <laughs> I, awesome. I know my, fam- my boys don't want to hear it so <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's okay neither does my family <laughs> alright everybody thanks for listening we appreciate it train hard All right. thanks sir <laughs>